brother we love, and kind of that entry level love that we're supposed to have as Christians. Today, perfect timing with Valentine's Day being this Wednesday, we're going to be talking about Eros love. And if you're wondering, the root word for erotic comes from this word. So, I hope that, you know, we all can keep a cool head and not sweat too much as we talk about romantic love today. And the saying that people do crazy things for love proves true as romance itself is, shows itself to be one of the most powerful forms of love, this idea of romantic love. And this type of love can easily become heaven or like hell for people depending on the circumstances surrounding their romantic life. And it can change a person's life forever just as much as it can also destroy a person's life forever. Romantic love is an essential life experience that we must learn to understand so that, so that it doesn't overpower our judgment and our decisions. Today, we're going to learn to understand our physical nature and our desire to be embraced. We're going to unpack what this love looks like in a practical way for single people, for married people, and for unmarried couples. And we're going to talk about our needs to nurture and protect this type of love in our lives. The reason that this topic is so important to talk about, especially within church, is because many Christians feel really confused about this subject. Many Christians can quickly make it this super weird area to navigate and it has commonly become, commonly become a life experience that makes believers afraid and even unnecessarily guilty because of the taboo culture about it within American churches. So many have made bad romantic decisions and efforts to please either God or church leaders, but end up bitter and resentful as they are the ones who have to live with the consequences. Y'all feel me? So, with that being said, let's start with our first point, and that is, I have needs. <laughs> like I said, it might be a little hot and heavy today. I have needs. And what I want us to understand in this first point is that God created us as sexual beings. And let me be clear, it's saying part sexual beings. Our whole identity isn't summed up in our sex, our sexuality. But part of it is, just as much as we have emotions, we're emotional beings, we're physical beings, we're spiritual beings, we're also sexual beings. That this topic of sex has always been somewhat like this dogma within American church culture. Uh, while the rest of culture has seemed to embrace the fullest possibilities of sex, churches have somewhat stood their ground at being maybe not silent on the subject, but quiet about it. And to really unpack the weirdness within, about sex within American church culture, I think that we can clearly see how uh, in our American culture, it, the culture has separated itself from church unity. Right? Do we agree with that? that? That while there's plenty of people that may still identify as Christian or religious, when it comes to church culture and American culture, there's been a separation. Back in the day, this idea of, of taboo and sex and sexuality was so extreme. Did you know that married couples would often sleep in separate beds as to refrain from their sexual desires from each other? 
because of the taboo of sex within church culture. And it's, that is not necessarily, a, that's not a biblical thing to do. It was definitely a traditionally churchy thing to do. And there's a lot of history of why our culture got that way. A lot of it has to do with like St. Augustine and, and other very prominent people within church history that navigated early theological reasoning for the early church that left paganism to, to this, this extreme orgy-infested way of worship, actual ways to worship their gods through orgies, to this idea of holiness and purity. It's completely different. And so they, they often looked at sex as this evil darkness that would consume you. And so they tried to avoid that at all costs, even within the, the holy matrimony of marriage. Get this. Do you know that there was actually different little scientific experiments that they used to do back today that to try to stifle people's sex drive. Because we just have this, this sinful nature that just is uncontrollable as we, as we just want to have sex with anything. And, and so doctors got together and like, this one doctor in specific, he ended up finding out that our diet can, can greatly be affected. And so he found that if you would give people dried cornflakes, dried biscuits, that would help lower their, your sex drive. His name was Dr. Kalon. And now, oh my God, it makes so much sense of why, why are we all eating, why is it just so ingrained in our culture to eat cereal for breakfast? Well, now we know why. It was just trying to stifle that. It can only do so much, though. You only do so much. It, can't, it just can't keep us down. We were able to persevere and still be where we're at today. Despite all the Cheerios and all the lies and breaking them. Oh, oh. But what I'm getting at is that this is how, how weird and taboo sex has been within church culture. To where maybe we don't try to scientifically change, at least within the church, we don't scientifically change people's sex drive through, through diet or medicine. But it is still this really, really weird topic. To where books have been written, like Kissing, Dating, Goodbye. You guys ever heard that book? It's a really popular book in the early 2000s where this young youth pastor, he was 22 when he wrote the book, and he gave this. This long dialogue within the book about how dating is, is not biblical, and that we that people really should be courting. And that it is pretty much this whole book about how how we shouldn't date, that we just need to court our spouse and, and just get married, and is pretty much a big book about sexual purity, not having sex, not even dating, and, and kind of making a more traditional take on it. Well, years later, the author has recanted his own book. He doesn't even sell it anymore because of, he doesn't even believe the things he wrote to be true. That he that he got hundreds of letters saying that he ruined their life because they never got the, the people would say, I never even got to know my spouse because I tried to follow your, your book and it ruined our, our marriage and our potential. It ruined our relationship because we they make it so weird. It would like projections like you shouldn't go on single dates, if you'd be alone with another person that you should only hang out with groups as like friends and get to know them that way. And it just made it really weird. Well then the author himself has also not just recanted his book, but he's also disowned his own faith. He's he's divorced now. I'm not saying that divorce is like this this label, but you're talking about 
this guy who's 22, wrote a book on dating, and the main line that people take away is, is telling kids to not have sex. They're like, yeah, take this book. Who here, as a grown adult, is looking to take advice, especially dating advice, romantic advice, from a 22-year-old? <laughs> See, that's where the church just gets weird. We just have weird stuff. And, we, and what I'm projecting is let's just calm down and understand that sex is not something that we have to be afraid of within church. That, there's, that the Bible actually gives a lot of understanding about it. And the, the, what we, the most that we tend to hear from churches is that sex is bad unless you're married. <laughs> it's like this generally what you'll get. But the Bible gives so much more meaning and deeper complexity to some of our most inner desires and questions about sexual desire. Look at this verse. We're talking about, let's just go to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 through 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so do it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on earth. And just pause here for a second. The very first command that he gives to mankind is a polite way of saying have sex. Be fruitful and multiply. There's a, there, you know, I know that like this conspiracy's about clones now, and I like to go to a clone and stuff, but for us to understand that this is predominantly the one way that we procreate is through sex. And it just happens to typically feel really good. So, this is God's command. Now, look at the next chapter. It says in Genesis 2, 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So the way that the Bible is written with different parts, especially in Genesis, is that it'll give like an overall rough trap, like a generalization, and then in the next chapter it's going into more detail. And so it's not that he created man and woman and then and then it's like, oh, he created the beginning. He gave a broad stroke, like this is what happened throughout the days, and now he's going back, like, now let me explain what I really did. And so he's breaking down how Adam and Eve were created. And in this verse, everything that God had created before this point said it is good. He literally made mosquitoes and said this is good. Okay? Everything, he made all the animals, all the, the earth, the sky, the stars, everything says it's good. Mankind, this is good. But right here, it is not good for the man to be alone. Adam had this loneliness within his heart. Not because he wasn't close to God, but because he had no other human being he could relate to, that he could identify with. He walked with God, conversed with his creator, his heavenly father, and yet he felt alone. And God did not smite him. He didn't say, oh, Adam, I thought I was enough. Crush you right there. Start all over. How dare you? He did not smite him, he did not crush him, but instead, he makes it. And look what it goes on to say. Jumping down to verse 21. Then the man said, At last, this is bone 
of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And then the curtains draw. So God creates Eve. He sees her. He says, ah, whoa, man. And it, and it seems like the curtains just draw on the scene, and then there's this whole, this whole narrator in the background saying, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. So the very first thing they did, seemingly, maybe they shared what their favorite color was. I don't know. But it seems as though one of the very first things they did was have sex. To consider that from the very beginning, a person desired to feel the embrace of another person. And to consider even before that, that Adam even ever, to before that, Adam didn't even know that another person could exist. To consider that even as he saw himself as the one human being in the world, never considered what a woman could be, never considered what, what it would be like to talk to another human being, only converse with God, I guess some the zebras and stuff, but that he had this longing in his heart that he couldn't even articulate. That he didn't, he may not have known how to articulate what he was feeling or why he was feeling it, he still felt it. Doesn't that sound like a lot of us? You remember even like early stages of puberty for you when, when you started to, to long for like this companionship, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, and, and it's like, it just started rising up in you. This longing. And, and here, God sees that. He understands what he's feeling. Even Adam doesn't understand why he's feeling it. God doesn't slight him or tell him that walking up with God in the garden should be more than enough for him. But in fact, he responded to Adam's loneliness, the loneliness of his heart, by creating an Eve to be a soulmate to him. It's incredibly romantic. It's incredibly special. And what's exceptionally beautiful about this moment is that the seemingly first thing they did was have sex and not feel shame about it. The, how it ends, like out of all things I can say, it's a lot here they didn't feel shame. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. No shame. God made them to be this perfect match for each other, physically and emotionally. God created sex. It's not like Adam and Eve snuck off into the bushes and came out and said, hey, God, guess what? God wasn't disgusted by it. Like, oh my. The parts were like, oh, don't try that? I've never even conceived of such an idea. But he created that moment for them. And to understand that while God takes delight in our multiplication, he delights in us having children, that that multiplying is not the sole purpose of sex. It, it, if it was, Eve would have been sure to become pregnant in this moment. But it seems as though that, that she doesn't become pregnant until much later. Even It seems as though not even until after they leave the garden. So they're just, they're just having the time in their lives. No TV, nothing, nothing to distract them with. I mean, and they're in this true honeymoon stage. And this whole story shows that the very first exchange between the first two people ever created 
was, was simply this exchange of intimacy and pleasure through sex. That's a pretty interesting detail about the creation of humanity that we should not ignore but understand that this is a part of our soul and our lives. How it looks in heaven, I don't know. But as far as our time here on earth, this is a, this, this romance, this kind of love, this kind of sex is a gift that God has given us. And I'll, I'll go as far to say that it's probably one of the best experiences a human being can ever have. It's where, I mean, I'm not saying that drugs are a good experience. They ruined my life. But it, even when I was in addiction before, before I chose sobriety, and I had the choice of drugs or sex, as, as high as I could get with this, sex always seemed like a better option. And it's to know that this thing that, that releases so much dopamine, so much endorphins, that it is like this, the, the, the most, one of the most desirable experiences to have in our lifetime, and God created it. And nothing compares to it. No other created thing, consider that, no other created thing feels like that. Don't think what I'm trying to say? I was about to say, like, turn to your neighbor and say, I got eaten, but I feel like that's amazing here. <laughs> Let's just look down at the floor and not look at anybody else. <laughs> so, now that we understand that God has made us part sexual beings, that's not our whole soul, that is part of our soul. Next, I want us to talk about the need to guard your heart. Romance can be like heaven or hell on earth. Okay? While American culture continues to throw off all barriers to sex, it is an overwhelmingly dangerous path to walk unbridled. Not just because of biblical connotations to sexual immorality, but because of the simple fact that your sex life will often determine your future. It will determine your future life. If you think carelessly about sex now, it will wreak havoc on your life later. And your body, your heart, and your mind will become prisoner to the person or people you let tie your soul to. Every time you have sex with you, you're knitting your souls together. And look at what it says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. It says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Now, remember, we're talking about romantic love. Sex is within that category. Our hearts will we'll dictate everything that we do in life. Everything in our life will come out of our heart. Now look at what this verse says. In Proverbs 6, 27-28, Can anyone take fire in his lap and his clothes not be burned? Or can, it, can a person walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? See, th this is the idea that we need to understand from these verses. That... <coughs> And we cannot imagine that it's just a little bit of sex. See, the, the, the world projects that it's just, it's just sex. It's not a big deal. Let me tell you, sex can be the greatest, it is one of the greatest experiences. That's what we just got done unpacking. That is literally like a supernatural experience that we're able to have. To belittle it is doing a disservice to our romantic life, but it is lying to yourself. It is simply lying to yourself. 
And it, it's trying, it positions you to be in a place where you are getting burned, but, but behave as if you're ignorant to why your, your life feels in shambles, to why your heart feels so confused, why your heart feels so broken. It, it, it's simply, you cannot play with this kind of fire and expect it to not affect your life. I mean, it, it, and again, as I'm saying that, your romantic life will determine the rest of your life. When, when I met Lauren, I was going to college. And almost immediately, once I realized I was going to marry Lauren, I no longer cared about going to school. This has become my standard advice. Someone told me, like, man, school has been really hard. Maybe you should drop out. <laughs> Maybe you should just drop out of the <laughs> But I, it, just meeting Lauren, falling in love, it completely changed the tra- trajectory of my life. I believe in a good way. I love what we have together. I'm happier than I've ever been. I told her today, and she's like, it was like early in the morning. So, you know, the Bible says don't sing songs in the morning or something like that. Your greeting in the morning will be taken as a curse. And she's just waking up like, oh, I'm going to say, this day that I woke up became the next best day of my life because I have you. Okay. But <laughs> <laughs> see, me falling in love with her determined the rest of my life. On the flip side, think about the last toxic relationship you had. <laughs> if you've ever had one, consider the last toxic one you had and see how it changed the direction of your life at that moment. It changed your interaction with your friendships. It changed your interaction at work. It, it changed even the decisions that you make. No, I mean, people I talk to who turned down a good opportunity because it was it, it, the person that they were with. And it will just, it will determine the rest of your life. Now, on the flip side, if you were to guard your heart and consider sex and romance to be meaningful and even sacred, you will be able to make sound life decisions with a clear head and a clear conscience. You would choose to be with a person of your dreams when you waited for it, rather than a person you settled for when you just felt desperate. Y'all feel what I'm saying? That, that desperation is that, is that cloud of judgment. And I want us to understand this, this idea. I, there's one year where the whole Valentine's message was just called desperate. That is a message. And I believe that it was really for somebody. <laughs> it was really for some folks. And that being said, though, when people feel desperate that for that romantic love in their life, and they, they, don't, they, they don't choose with a clear head, they're, they're choosing off of just what they feel at the moment, make terrible choices. Terrible. Because remember, this type of love is one of the most one of the most powerful forms of love. People do crazy things for love. Think about that time that you were, maybe you were in high school and you were with that person that was cheating on you, but you just kept staying with them even though they were cheating on you. And it's like, but I love them. Because so you make decisions like that in the, in the moment of desire. There's some laughing and going on. <laughs> All I'm saying is, we have to be more careful of who we share our hearts with. To consider that every romantic, uh, 
every romantic connection that we have has big implications to our souls and our livelihood, especially our future. Now, I want to read just a bit, just a big little passage. Just to, I, I feel like this would just be a good, given the topic, this will be a good passage to read. And it's 1 Corinthians 6, 12, and 20. Instead of just saying other things, I feel like this passage sums it up. It says, you say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. Let's just pause for a second. Isn't that good? You're allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You're allowed to be with whoever you want, but maybe not just anyone that's great for you. I get to consider me, I'm just desperate. Let's go on. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies, and God will raise us up from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? So, let's unpack that. Just as I said that we're sexual beings, that is not our purpose in life. Our purpose isn't just sexuality. It's not just sex. Our purpose is so much greater than that. That's what this verse is saying. Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her. For the scriptures say that two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So I the spiritual implications of who we sleep with. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? As a side step, I always think it's funny when, when I hear people use this verse as a reason to not get tattoos and stuff. It's like, <laughs> I think it's like, has bigger implications than that. <laughs> you do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. This is one of the most powerful ideas about the idea of your sex life, your romantic love life, is that it's one very powerful way that we're able to honor God. It's a powerful way that we're able to, to worship God through who we choose to have sex with and not have sex with. And to understand that it's not about being slighted or, or, or slammed dumped to hell, but it's this idea that you have this way to worship God instead of just through lip service, instead of just by going to church, that it's this unique, special way where you're actually connecting your soul to God by honoring Him in your life in one of the most meaningful ways that you, could, you ever could, and that's through your romantic life, sex life. Y'all feel what I'm saying? And the reality of sex is that, like I said, it's one of the most amazing and powerful gifts that God created for us. But it's like it's like a contained fire. A contained fire can seem like a supernatural experience. You can just look at the fire in a fire pit. It's just like, you notice at a barbecue, everyone just goes and starts looking at the fire. It's just like sex. Everyone just starts staring. If we just go and look, it seems like a supernatural experience going on. And see, sex is like that. It, it just leaves us feeling wondrous and fulfilled. But 
A fire unbridled can burn your house down and consume your life. It, consume, it can consume and destroy everything that you built, and it can thwart your future. Your power and life were cursed. And, and that is where God has these, this idea of parameters within sex within marriage as this, this, this safety for us to be able to experience it in the best way possible. When it's out of that, it leaves people crushed time and time again. Now, let's, I have one last point to share with you, and that is keep it simple. It, I, would, I would really especially say that this is really good for, for single people, dating people. Keep it simple. Appreciate and foster the love that you do have. See, I think that we often feel confused or simply insecure about our romantic life. We just feel confused and insecure. And we get afraid of the responsibility of choosing a life partner. So we attempt to put it all on God to tell us what to do. God, are they the one? And I think that the best advice that I believe that the Bible conveys to us in regard to relationships is the concept that we all have the freedom of choice. It, it's like when someone is single too long, I think God is destined to be singleness. I think that God, God's making me, I'm, I'm destined to singleness, that's what it is. And almost every time someone has told me that, I ask them, well, do, do you not want to be married? I'm like, oh, I don't love that. Then maybe God is the destiny for seeing this. If that's a powerful, like, motivator in your heart, then that's not your gifting. <laughs> your gift is not seeing this. Maybe, but see how we just, we throw it on God. Like, well, it's, the only reason I'm seeing is because God has it to me the right one. I, I'm not telling us to, like, like, read down on your Twitter account, okay? I'm just, <laughs> I'm just saying, don't blame God for your singleness. And, and, the other term, the idea of like being with someone, you know how many times people just you get so weird about it. You just get so weird. A lot of people say, like, well, I went to, I went on the stage with this guy and I really don't like him. But he told me that that God said that we're supposed to get married. So I guess that's not it. He's like, you like you need to run for your life. What are you doing? And it's and we again we just put the responsibility on God. Well, God made me marry you. So, like, just chill out. Like, God also gave you a brain and common sense and, and reason. And He is not forcing you to be with anyone. The only time I see that in scripture is when God told Hosea to go marry Gomer, who was a prostitute. And that had, like, a lot of prophetic implications. And I've never seen it again. And I don't, anyone that were to say that, I'm like, well, maybe you should ask about that first. Okay, like, let's just. I understand your, your tenacity, but let's just chill out, okay? Because God gives you freedom of choice. If, if you, it's just like, just, just use your brain. Okay, let's just use our brain. Let's just, if, you, if you ever get to a point where you're thinking something and it's starting to sound more and more spiritual to where it sounds really weird, stop. Stop what you're doing. And ask yourself, is this just weird? And it, it might just be that where it's just so weird where you just need to stop and go talk to someone. Like, Does it sound weird? And maybe they'll, maybe they'll be polite like, what? Huh? That's a little weird. And maybe you'll talk to a second person like that you, that you know will be a little more honest. Like, that's really weird. When you get to that point, just know that it's not really spiritual. You just be weird. Can we do that? I, I, I want to make it a culture in our church 
to not be weirdos, to not be those weirdo Christians. I, I, I know it hasn't been done before, but I really believe in you guys. I really believe that you guys would be the first generation of non-weird Christians when it comes to romance. Anyone going to take up this call? <laughs> so let me, let me go on. Scripture talks about instances in being married, single, engaged, and etc. that leaves people with a choice to do what they believe they ought to do within moral reason. So me, don't be spiritualizing sin in your life. Sometimes we make sin to be the most spiritual things of reasons of why we're doing it. Don't do that. Within moral reason, be honest with yourself. And look what this verse is saying. First Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7.1-5. Now regarding the questions you asked in your letter, yes, it's good to abstain from sexual relations, but because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's sexual needs. Can I get away with that? <laughs> Oh, I just felt like Lauren slapped me in the spirit. <laughs> but notice, husbands, guys, it first says to fulfill our wives' sexual needs. And then, I think just out of like, like reassurance and politeness, it says, and wives, yeah, fulfill the husband's needs too. But I don't think, like sometimes the second half can be done without the first half, but the first half doesn't necessarily generally happen without the second half. Nope. Oh, this, this is too specific. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time. So you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never met anyone that is praying that much. Okay? We, we just not. So, I, 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 I go into fasts and prayers and all that. I've never had a, to refrain myself. I haven't arrived at that area yet. It goes on to say, afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul's literally saying, look, y'all just need to chill out and have sex with each other within marriage. If you, if you feel like you're just all wild in your head, go get married and just have sex with each other, okay? Like, skip, just go. But notice how he says, so that Satan won't be able to tempt you. Because what he's saying within that is that when we allow that, that, that sex drive outside of that safety of marriage, Satan will run rampant in our lives. It, as, a, as a quick story, y'all remember back in, I think it was like 2012, where I think it was in Chicago, there was this guy that ended up, these, these three girls were pretty much captive in his basement cellar for like years, 11 years. And he was abusing them as his own sex slaves. Kidnapping them when they were like 11 years old, 13 years old, three different girls. Terror, terror. And thank God that they, they got free and he got arrested. And before he went to prison, when they were about to, to sentence him, the, the, the persecutor was able to, the, the, uh, he was able to give this little testimony. And as within his thing, they did a lot of deflecting, a lot of blaming on others, and a lot of like, oh, it wasn't that bad. But within his statement, he said this. He said, 
that it all started with him watching pornography. And then eventually, he, he just kept meeting more and more. And eventually that wasn't enough. The next thing wasn't enough. Hookers weren't enough. And until one day, he was driving his school bus, he's a school bus driver, and saw this girl in the rain that was walking home from school. Picked her up, it was just him and her. And his sexual desire took over. And then eventually that wasn't enough. And he kidnapped another girl. And eventually that wasn't enough. And he kidnapped another girl. Now look, I'm not suggesting to anyone here that if, if you have premarital sex, that will be you one day. I'm not suggesting to anyone here that if, if you don't stop looking at porn, you're going to be this kidnapping lunatic. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying, I'm using that story to personify how powerful darkness can really be. How powerful it can really be when we let it be unbridled in our lives. And that is, that is what Paul is talking here about here when he says that Satan won't be able to tempt you. Now, I know that was a little heavy. It says this. It goes on to say, So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better for you to stay unmarried just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, then they should just go ahead and get married. It's better to marry than to burn with lust. So again, God may not be calling you to singleness if you're burning with this lust on your heart. If you're desiring to be with somebody else. Maybe, guys, maybe you have the freedom of choice to just go out and choose. Now, regarding your question about the young women who not, are not yet married, I do not have a command from the Lord for them, but the Lord in His mercy has given me wisdom that can be trusted, and I will share it with you. So he's saying, look, I'm not saying God is telling me this, but I've been around the block, and this is some advice I'm going to give to you. That's what he's saying about that. Because of the present crisis, I think it's best to remain as you are. If you have a wife, do not seek to, to end the marriage. If you do not have a wife, do not seek to get married. But if you do get married, it is not a sin. Emphasis on the present crisis, meaning the persecution of the church, the killing of Christians, the killing of Jews in that area, saying, you're going to be saying, I'm trying to save you of, of, of more troubles. And if a young woman gets married, it is not a sin. However, those who get married at this time will have troubles, and I'm trying to spare you those problems. Y'all get what he's saying? He's saying it's a, that not only is, are we being persecuted and killed out here on these streets, but you get married too, you're going to be so concerned about your spouse as you're also fearing for your own life. He's just saying, I'm trying to spare you these things. And look, I think this is, I think this is just like a really great supplemental verse. Within this chapter, he says this. Yes, each of you should remain as you were when God called you. Are you a slave? Don't let that worry you, but if you get a chance to be free, take it. Now look, I'm not saying that marriage is slavery. What I am saying is he, he just, he, he overwhelmingly tries to make it simple for us. Let's replace some of the words here. I'm not, I'm automatically saying I'm replacing the word. I'm not saying this is the Bible. But look, if, are you single? Don't let that worry you. If you get the chance to get married, take it. Y'all feel me? It, it just, all I'm saying is this whole, this whole passage, all, all I'm saying again and again is keep it simple. Don't over-spiritualize it. And it is a spiritual experience. It is a spiritual thing in your life. But 
Also keep it simple. The guidance to those who are married is simply to stay married. Work at loving each other better and don't deprive each other of sex. The guidance to those who are engaged or dating, go ahead and get married if you want to. The advice to the single, stay single and get married if you want to. No one is cursed to singleness or marriage. If they don't want to be, you choose what you want to do and expect to live with the results of your decisions. It's your decisions, your choices that you have to live with. The general essence to take away from this topic of romantic love is to simply do your best to be a good steward of your heart as you learn to be a good steward of someone else's. Don't be ashamed of having sexual desires, for wanting to be loved, or for wanting to be single. Don't burn down your house in pursuit of sexual pleasure, but whatever you do feel, Filter it through God's word so that you can appreciate the purity of what you are really feeling. Y'all take that? That being said, I want us to bow our heads and close our eyes. And in the same, in this attitude that we have considering love, I want you to think about your own walk with God. And as I've been talking about romantic love, the emphasis I want to make is how Adam walked with God in the garden, yet he still had desires. And there's so many people who have been trying to walk with God and been feeling confused about feeling discontent, confused about your own walk with God in the process. And maybe at some point today you realize that God is a lot more simpler for you than that. Maybe you're realizing that his love for you is so pure, so simple, and that he simply does want the best for you. He's not waiting to slam dunk you to hell, he's not waiting to curse you. And if you're here today, with every head bowed and eye closed, and you want to make a decision to put your trust in that love, that love of God is through Jesus Christ on the cross. And if you've never made that decision before, and you want to make that decision today, I want you to just raise your hand. Amen. So right there to yourself, I want you to have your own conversation with Jesus. The Bible says in the book of Romans that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is who he says he is, surely you shall be saved. What it's saying is you have a genuine heart and talk to him yourself. And that's all it takes to start this journey with him, this relationship with him. You don't need me to lead you through a pretty prayer. You can talk to him yourself. Now, while they're doing that, for the rest of you here, if you feel like this is what you needed to hear today, you feel like the Holy Spirit is talking to you, Encouraging you, maybe you feel like you've been getting little clues throughout the week, and today was like a big bill for affirming all those clues that God's been speaking to you. And that's you, I want you to raise your hand. I see all your hands. So now I'm going to pray for you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you finish the work that you started in these people's lives. I pray that you affirm them, that you make them sensitive to your voice, and I pray that you bless them in the name of Jesus. Continue. Thank you for being a part of the Gravetop Church online community. I hope that today's message inspired you and that it made a difference in your life. If you'd like to connect with our church or if you'd like to donate towards our mission, all you have to do is go to gravetopchurch.com and find the Ways to Connect tab or the Donate tab. Either way, I'm so grateful for you being a part of today. Until next time, have a great life.